listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the Executive Director of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. And with me is my fabulous co-host, our Vice President, Lauren Young. I am so excited to be here, and I am a big fan of our guest that we have on today. I know. I am a big fan of our guest, too. He is a very, very, very good friend to to Putt and and to American Pharmacies. And actually, I think anybody who knows him, Miguel Rodriguez, who is the general counsel at American Pharmacies, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here, too. And I'm super fans of Putt and all of you guys. Thank you. Yeah, we we um not to make this the Mutual Admiration Society, but we um we do have a really cool event coming up at NCPA next month, our PBM Reform Cocktail Party. You're going to be there, yes? I will be there. I, th- I think that's our third annual. This will be our third annual. Yes. Mistake. Yes, it will. <laughs> yeah. So it's a tradition. Um, I want to make sure it keeps going on year after year. Yeah, yeah, us too. It's it's great to get together, to have a drink, to laugh about all the terrible things that happen with the largest pharmacy benefit managers. Because at this point, if you can't laugh, what's the point, right? So we're excited about that. But um, today, we are really glad to have you because we're going to talk about a big topic. And that topic is the Inflation Reduction Act, and specifically the part about Medicare drug price negotiation, because particularly for pharmacies, there's a lot of unknowns here. And I think as we, you and I and Lauren were talking just before the show, we were beginning to look at just how many things are unknown. So you're our our expert today. and, And so thank you for that. For people listening, normally what we do is we have a, a, a conversation and it's really fun. And today's conversation is going to be really fun. But today we're going to approach it from a different place. Today we're going to talk about five things you really need to know about the Inflation Reduction Act, about the Medicare drug price negotiation. And so just to start off with that, I think a really great thing would be to know the gist of what this part of the Inflation Reduction Act is. So Miguel, if you wouldn't mind uh, just starting off with a general kind of summary of what we're talking about today. Yeah, well, this uh, it's a big topic because it's going to affect the entire economic model of prescription drugs in the United States. So, I mean, it's a pretty significant change in the rules of the game for a huge part of our economy and a huge part of healthcare, huge part of what's important to all of uh, our respective members. So when the Medicare Part D program started, there was a provision that's that's called the non-interference clause. So this is a, a clause that specifically said that the Secretary for Health and Human Services, so you know, the Medicare Secretary, is not permitted to interfere in any way in between negotiations of drug makers and Part D plans. And that's been in effect 
since Part D has been around. And that is no longer in effect or not, not in effect in the same way. It's been modified in, a, in an important way that allows the Secretary of Health and Human Services to interfere. So it is now no longer the non-interference clause. It's the partially non-interference clause, basically, because there's going to be a, a process that's going to roll out over many years. It's starting with 10 drugs, uh, but then we'll expand year by year. And there'll be a, effectively a price set, a maximum price set for the, the drugs that are selected. And then there's other provisions also that, that affect, affect not just those drugs, but all drugs in the Medicare program. So it's a big change, uh, a fundamental shift in how that works. And because Medicare is such a big part of the economy, the healthcare drug spend, it's going to affect the entire market, not just not just drugs in Medicare, but drugs outside of Medicare. So it's, it's really, it's hard to overstate how significant this change is going to be. So this was signed into law last year. Some things came to our, our attention this year, like the insulin cap. Did that go into effect this year, the insulin cap? Yeah. Okay. Starting in, in January, patients cannot be charged more than $35 to get insulin. That doesn't mean that the reimbursement is capped at $35, but the patient's portion of what they spend is capped at $35. And then Lauren, for you as a pharmacy owner, uh, this for your patients on the surface, we know just it's great, right? It sounds so good, but as a pharmacy owner and as someone who is in the community of community pharmacy owners, I'm curious what the initial reactions have been just, just to the just to the law itself, before we get into some of the other points, just in general, like what what is what what were people thinking before it was signed into law? What did they think afterward? What did you think? I know there were some owners that thought that this past spring, whenever there was a lot of talk about PBMs in Congress, and they had a couple of different committee hearings, and they brought pharma and then they brought some PBMs in front of the congressional, office holders, and they were kind of put their feet to the fire a little bit. And then Eli Lilly announced that they were going to charge $25 for their non-branded insulin. So just under that $35 cap that the IRA had put in place. And so that was interesting to see whether it was just a marketing gimmick to see if they were just going to push their non-branded insulin to see if people would actually go for that because it was $25. And that was obviously cheaper than what patients had been paying if they were having to pay several hundred out of pocket. I know that owners are very, very cautious about any time the government you know, comes in and tries to help save money on anything, because as business owners, we are typically the ones that has to help fill in the gap when our patients are the ones that are not able to get the service that they want. So that's what we've heard so far was that... Insulin cap makes a lot of great press releases, makes a lot of great news stories, but we just want to make sure that it does actually flow down to the patient. And like Miguel said, if it has anything to do with reimbursement and the PBMs are still able to take money from us, they will. doesn't matter if Congress is going to tell them to do something else because they can just pay the fine and get out of it. Hopefully the consequences that they're putting in place of having the 
penalty of losing the Medicare space and being able to play the game is a big enough consequence for them. Because we've seen on the state side, whenever legislation has passed, they do not care about daily or even per occurrence fines, as we found out in states like Oklahoma and places like that. They can easily pay that. And then they're using our DIR fees that they're taking from us to basically bankroll that. So, you know, we get hit twice. So that's something that we were, like I said, trying to be cautious about hearing all of these different changes and hoping that our patients are actually going to feel some kind of relief at the pharmacy counter. And then as an owner that has to pay for that drug, that we will eventually get much, much closer to an actual drug that we can afford and bring into our store for our patients. I think you've done a good job really echoing what the conversations are out there, you know, because you're right. Anything that sounds like it's too good to be true, surely it must be too good to be true. And you could just sort of hear like the, the cheers from people when it was announced that insulin, and, and we bring up insulin because that's so relatable to most people, but you could hear the cheers collectively when insulin was going to be capped at $35. And you could kind of hear the conspiracy, you know, theories and heads blowing off bodies when, you know, some of those $30 caps, suddenly the, those insulins went down lower to lower prices. And what did that mean? And is this a PR gimmick and, and all of that other stuff. And of course, uh, the pharmacy industry is not like any other industry out there. It's the, one of the few industries where you actually are compelled to serve a patient. You are compelled to lose money on a good and a service that is being provided in some cases by contract. And so as we're going to talk about as we go along, you know, we're going to explore some of those echoes of familiarity uh, now that the government has been able to shall we say, take some power back with regard to negotiations. Both you and Miguel mentioned the drugs that have been announced, right? So that I would say is the second point that there is to know about that, that there are the first 10 drugs they have been identified. And I think it would be helpful if we, you know, talked a little bit about that. Not so much name all the 10 drugs, but, you know, kind of talk about these drugs. Miguel, can you tell us a little bit about this next point, the drugs, why they were chosen, what this means, what we think might be the effect here? Yeah, the, well, there was a sort of a selection process by CMS to figure out which were the drugs, which would be the first 10 that would be the subject of this price negotiation and, or price setting, depending on what side you're on. And I, I guess one way to say to say it, it that it's common for all the 10 are they're highly utilized drugs in Medicare and they're expensive. So they they, they account for a huge part of Medicare drug spend and they're selected that way. They also don't have generic uh, alternatives. So no drug that has a generic alternative is supposed to be part of this negotiation process. And also uh, no drug that has, that have been uh, uh, approved for, for less than five, nine years can be on the list. So uh, there, there's these other technical aspects for what drugs can and can't be on there, but that basically the 10 that were ultimately selected that were announced just about a week ago fit all those different criteria. And every year, so the, so now that, that's the first 10 this year, then there's going to be, I think, 15 next year, and then uh, 15 the year after that, and then 20 more every year following, uh, according to the current statute. So 
over time, the list will become bigger and bigger. And, and I assume some of these will fall off once the generic alternatives come to the market, the it'll fall off of the maximum fair price list. But over time, this, this list is going to be pretty big. So highly utilized, very expensive. Um, these would have been 10 high priority drugs that ostensibly Medicare, CMS would be looking at as ways to stem the outflows that they're you know, currently expending. So we don't actually know if any pharmacy benefit managers are involved in the negotiation, right? right. So far as we know, this is CMS doing its direct negotiation. Is that right? Yeah. So I guess at a high level, what's supposed to happen is they'll, they announce the list, which has now been announced over the next several months that there's going to be an offer. Well, there's going to be an information exchange. So the, so CMS will go to the drug maker of the drugs on that list and ask for information. And they're trying to get information about how much they charge within the program. They're trying to find out what the average manufacturer price is, both within the federal programs and outside the federal programs. They're trying to uh, find out what the research and development costs were for the drug. Uh, they're trying to do it to create a, a basically a pool of information from which CMS in theory will say, okay, now I know how much it took you to develop this drug. I know how much you're charging in the market for this drug. And I'm going to use that information to, to determine what CMS thinks is the fair price for it. And then they'll give that tender that over to the manufacturer and the manufacturer can try to poke holes in the analysis that CMS did and, and maybe present a counter offer. But as I understand it, and I, I could be wrong because it's a pretty arcane process, but if the counteroffer is not binding on CMS, and so CMS can reject the counteroffer and stick with their original offer, modify it however CMS wants, and that becomes the price. So the, these of these 10 drugs, I was looking and I think, yeah, so in September 1 of next year, CMS will announce the maximum fair price for the 10 drugs they, they just selected. So this whole process is gonna play out over the next 12 months, basically. And they'll announce the price and then those prices will go into effect for Medicare patients January 1 of 2026. So it's good. there's a, still a ramp up time uh, that's gonna be somewhat lengthy. It'll be here before we know it, but but that's basically this, this whole back and forth, as I understand it, in coming, up with a price and, and getting it out to the market. So it's good that you said that because that will then take us to a third thing to know, which is that the term negotiation should be used loosely here, right? Because there is, uh, it's not exactly like, hey, government, you know, we think you should buy our drug for this amount. And the government's like, I'm going to offer you like this amount. And then there's not like haggling going on here, right? There's an actual other process. Can you describe that or what you think that is? Well, yeah. Whenever I talk about like in, in, I'm not just talking about this inflation reduction act. I'm talking about any sort of negotiation to me, the power in a negotiation is the ability to say no. You know, if you can say no, if you go to, into a negotiation saying that if you don't get what you want, you can say no and walk away and basically be left in the same position you started with, then you have a lot of power in a negotiation. And I'm not usually sympathetic to pharma, but, but I'm a little, I mean, the, the way this is set up is there's a lot of power that's been given to the federal government in this, in this process, this negotiation process. 
because ultimately the CMS is going to come up with a number that they're going to say is the manufacturer a fair price. So can what happens if the drug maker doesn't like it? Well, they can uh, not use that price in Medicare and then be subject to these huge, huge penalties and excise taxes for charging more than the manufacturer fair price. Just massive amounts of money that one of it is is a percentage of all the sales annually in uh, the whole program for that one drug. So basically all sales and, and a huge percent that, that ramps up over time and gets more onerous. So they can pay that penalty, which of course they would not want to do. Another alternative they can do is give up that drug and say, I don't, you know what, I'm not going to make that drug anymore. I want to stay in the program for all my other drugs, but I, they, their alternative is to give up the drug and sell it, sell it to a different drug company and let them deal with it. A uh, third al alternative is to give up any sales for any of their products, not just the one being negotiated, but for all of their portfolio of drugs in all Medicaid and Medicare programs and, and leave and just walk away from those programs altogether for all their drugs. <laughs> None of these are very palatable choices for drug makers to make. And, uh, and so the power to say no is highly limited, I would say. It's, it's not something that the drug makers are going to feel they have under the current set of facts. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if that's going to change later, but it's just not a very comfortable place to be as a drug maker. Yeah. Yeah. Lauren, it kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so for everyone listening, when we were planning the show, we were talking a little bit about uh, another very good friend of ours, uh, who is the attorney for the punch lawsuit and his work in trying to bring to light the unconscionable nature of the contracts between the largest pharmacy benefit managers and pharmacies if they want to protest, if they want to get out of their contract, if they have some issue with the contract, they're forced into arbitration. And that arbitration is a minimum of $250,000. And they, the, the pharmacy has to do it as an individual. There cannot be collections. I mean, the whole thing is not a negotiation. The contract is one that it occurs under duress, which is a little bit like what you're describing in a way. And you're right. It's not, it's hard to be sympathetic to major manufacturers whose you know, profits are in the multiple of billions. On the other hand, when you look at what they're doing, I'll just put out there, they do make a product. They do engage in research and development and they do actually make a product. I can't speak to what the pricing model is and why some of these drugs are so very, very expensive, but it's not exactly the same thing as say like a third party middleman whose job is to receive and pay claims but who instead engages in their own price negotiations and you know plays doctor by deciding about prior authorizations and stuff. But don't let me put my you know PBM reform bias in on this, Lauren. You, again, you may you may have lots to say about this. <laughs> yeah, that's that's time for another podcast, though. <laughs> okay, fair yeah, enough. I mean, I, you know, I I mean, I I, I see definitely see. Uh, pharma's and the manufacturer's point in this is these are not easy ways to negotiate on. Of course, they are asking to be a, in a program that's heavily subsidized by taxpayer dollars. I mean, this is this is our tax money that's being used to fund uh, the the drugs for these these patients, and so 
I don't mind them being under some some rulemaking. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's got to be some guideline for them to be being able to reap the benefit of all the taxpayer dollars we've <laughs> we're, we're, uh, putting up for these drugs. Yeah, agreed. And actually, um, so there, there's a fourth point that's related to this, but I do want to just take a, a second and uh, talk about 340B. Lauren, we were talking about that. And I think there's there's question. We don't know. We don't know how the 340B programs and the low-income programs for patients who really depend on those for these types of medications, we actually don't know what the effect will be on this. We, Absolutely. We They're talking about how this Inflation Reduction Act in the next couple of years can change the benchmark for low-income subsidy patients. And so that's definitely something that if you have pharmacy in a 340B clinic or federally qualified health center, and you do have some of those low-income subsidy patients, that's definitely something to make sure you're staying on top of and being aware of, because those patients are the kind that can easily slip through the cracks. They don't know that something has changed. They don't know why it's changed. And so as a community pharmacy staff member, we usually have to help them get all of those puzzle pieces put back together so they're not having to pay when they can't. Those are the type of patients that are literally choosing between their rent and their medication or their power bill and their medication. And so that's really what we are trying to keep from happening. Yeah, spot on. Very, very well said. So I guess the fourth thing then related to these negotiations, using that term, is that there are lawsuits now about this. This law is up for challenge by by, by pharma. Can, uh, Miguel, can you tell us a little bit about that and what's going on and the nature of those lawsuits? Yeah, well, pharma, uh, the, the trade association, uh, the chambers of commerce of several at the federal, state, local level, uh, and then individual drug companies and others have sued CMS under a huge variety of legal theories to try to put the brakes on the implementation of the IRA, primarily focused on this drug price negotiation aspect of it. The IRA has a lot of aspects. Lauren was just talking about the loan from subsidy. Uh, and there's there's others, you know, with the cap on um, insulin prices and other things, out-of-pocket maxes. There, there's different aspects that are uh, focused on the benefit to the patient. But all of these lawsuits are are focused on the drug price negotiation. And, and there's really some interesting legal theories that are, I mean, as, as a lawyer, you know, you don't usually see some of these legal theories floated as grounds, but one of them is the First Amendment, freedom of speech. And, and one of the lawsuits is saying that it's a violation of the drug maker's freedom of speech to have to be part of an agreement you know, so the, the so the, in other words, the CMS is supposed to negotiate with the drug maker and enter an agreement, and and they don't want it to be called an agreement because they're saying it's not really an agreement; it's a dictated price. So you can't don't don't force me to say I'm entering into a real agreement with someone, and that's a violation of my rights of the First Amendment to be forced to say such a thing. <laughs> so so there's some, that's pretty novel. The, the other one that that and this this is in most of the lawsuits are, are asserting First Amendment freedom of speech. They're also asserting. Eighth Amendment, which is the one that bans uh, cruel and unusual punishment, is this Eighth Amendment. It also bans excessive fines. That's really what they're going under. But you know, you can tell when you're 
focused on the amendment dealing with cruel and unusual punishment that you're really <laughs> under a lot of uh, pain and, and that there's a lot of, at stake here uh, for these manufacturers that they're trying to protect a business model that's been very beneficial to them, whether you agree or disagree with them on the legal aspect or the economics of it. Ultimately, it's obvious that they see this is not going to be an upside to them in terms of uh, how much money they can make on these drugs. And so there's uh, several uh, lawsuits. They've all been filed. I think almost all of them have been filed in this calendar year, several months ago, and they're in through various briefing stages. And we'll probably start seeing rulings from the trial court over the next, say, three to five months. And then those will then go to appeal. And we might see some of this in front of the, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court in the next, say, 12 months or 18 months. So this is going to be one of those things that's going to be floating through the whole legal system. And, and a lot of lawyers are going to be paid a lot of money to be fought, fighting on these very these issues that will define where a lot of billions of dollars are going to be in the balance one way or the other. Do you think it's stoppable? Miguel, you can answer my question first, then Lawrence. My question is, do you think it's stoppable? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't say that I've gone through every single one and, and seen all the legal theories. I'm not, there was none that blew me away uh, in terms of, um, one of them I saw, uh, I thought was kind of interesting because the, they were trying to make the argument that said that a manufacturer was going to be forced without an opportunity to to have time to get out of this, to get a price set on them and be subject to penalties before they could even voluntarily give up on the program. So their argument was, we'll be out hundreds of millions of dollars before we even get the opportunity to quit the program. Even if we wanted to, we don't want to quit, but if, if that's our only alternative than paying these fines, we'll probably do that, but we didn't even have the opportunity. We'll be out millions of dollars. And CMS's response was that they revised their guidelines to say that anyone that wants out can get out in 30 days. So this is a very fluid situation. CMS is making rules on the, the law as we speak. Uh, the most recent iteration came out in some guidelines they put out in June, and but they're not done yet. They're, they're going to be making more guidelines going forward. So so the the legal landscape is in flux. And one of the persons that's making it in flux is CMS, who's a party to all these lawsuits at the same time. So I don't know. It's probably too early to tell um, whether any of them has a chance of success. There was one lawsuit that caught my eye within the last week, and it was Humana was filed a, a lawsuit against HHS because the government is trying to claw back overpayments in the Medicare Advantage space. And there's been talk that the Inflation Reduction Act really sets up Medicare Advantage to take on a lot more patients because of how the different rules are being set up. And there's already been a huge increase in Medicare Advantage enrollees in the last couple of years. I think it went up from 19% to 50% or close to 50% in the last five years. So it's definitely booming. And it was interesting to see Humana take the tactic of, oh, no, you can't claw back money after the service has already been rendered, which oh, wow. as we as pharmacy owners know, it's like, hey, uh, we agree. Could you stop doing that to us? That'd be great. And so, but they're wanting to, you know, the, the overpayment in the Medicare Advantage space is somewhere in the like $37 billion space. 
And so they're probably just trying to make sure they have enough in their piggy bank once the DIR fees change to the point of sale in January. They're trying to make sure there's all the additional capital they can. But I thought it was interesting that Humana, you know, dipped their toe in first to try to save and cover their Medicare Advantage population in that way because of the IRA. Well, I haven't seen that lawsuit. I'm, I'll be happy to take a look at it because uh, that's a definitely a new angle that they're going on. And I, I wouldn't mind framing that statement about their complaint about post point of sale fees and <laughs> frame that one. Yeah. Just about everything we've been talking about is something pharmacies could say about the contracts they have with PBMs. So, you know, I absolutely Absolutely true. And, you know, Lauren, as you were talking about Humana, I was reminded of that article that ran in the New York Times several months ago that listed in detail the overbilling of Medicare Advantage plans. And I think Humana was right at the top in that list for how much they were making. They were just really raking it in and it was all overbilling and it was it was disturbing. So, you know, I, I guess anything to protect the revenue stream, if that's what it's going to take. Right. Absolutely. They say that the regulation is unfair. And I just want to let every legislator know that when we say that, we are almost laughed out of the office to say, oh, you're in business. You can't say that's unfair. You're negotiating with these people. So Humana says it too. So I hope you tell those lobbyists the exact same thing you tell us. Oh, I'm sure they will. In fact, I'm sure they will have far less sympathy than anybody else, strictly because they're even higher in the fortune, you know, list than than the manufacturers are. So we shall see. So so we're kind of winding into our the fifth thing to know here, which is that there aren't any guarantees for pharmacies in this. So we have a, a, a shall we call it again, a negotiated price for a drug. The patient still has to get that drug at the pharmacy. But there's some things we don't know about what is going to happen there. So Miguel, can you walk us through some of the things that are currently uncertain about this law with regard to yes well one of the things i've focused on in looking at the ira and some of the guidance that cms has issued is what does this mean for pharmacies bottom line uh the patient is being protected by this manufacturer that's this maximum fair price the mfp so when the patient goes into the store and the drug is offered uh the patient will pay no more than that and of course, the plan will pay no more than that too. So, so whether it's the uh, copay for the patient or the plan's reimbursement uh, of how much th they're going to have to ultimately pay, it can be no more than the manufacturer price, the maximum. Excuse me, the maximum fair price. And uh, but what does it mean for the pharmacy? What's the pharmacy going to see in terms of the pharmacy reimbursement at the end of the day? And as far as I could tell. Under current guidance, there is no protection of the pharmacy, and the pharmacy can be reimbursed a total net price less than the maximum fair price. So, of course, that's what most independent pharmacies and all pharmacies are seeing today is, is the problem, uh, especially on brands, of being reimbursed under acquisition costs and being unprotected there, certainly unprotected in terms of dispensing fee. Uh, but CMS's guidance, as far as I can tell, is saying that, one, there's no protection on the ultimate amount that the pharmacy gets paid, that 
Part D plans, uh, there's no regulation on on fees, the fees associated with it to, to pharmacies, and there's no regulation on dispensing fees, the amount, how much the dispensing should be in terms of fairness. So all those taken together leave me with the impression that CMS would not object to a pharmacy getting paid less than the maximum fair price in terms of reimbursement for the drug. Uh, so that, that's just a problem. And uh, it's been a problem. It's it's been a problem before the IRA. The IRA is not solving it. And although the the patients are are coming out with with a very good protection for the patient and for the Part D plan, the pharmacies are left out uh, left out of that protection. Um, so I think that's a big problem that that hopefully will get fixed at some point in the future. There, there's a I think a good statutory argument against the way CMS seems to be interpreting this because maximum fair price is defined to be a price, not, not necessarily the most that a pharmacy can get paid, but simply as a dollar, whatever the price is set at. And so there's a lot of both legislation and CMS guidance that says that a manufacturer has to provide access to this MFP to the pharmacy. And one of the ways they're going to be doing that is by having this really interesting new payment structure where the drug maker of one of these drugs on the list is going to send rebate dollars to the pharmacy paid within 14 days. That's going to be calculated as WAC minus MFP. So the wholesale acquisition cost less maximum fair price, whatever that dollar figure is, there's going to be a payment made to the pharmacy 14 days after the patient picks up the drugs or after the claim submitted for that amount. But unfortunately, that dollar figure doesn't fully take into account the reimbursement by the Part D plan. So altogether, that rebate dollar and the reimbursement may not total and equal the, the uh, acquisition cost of the pharmacy. So that's a error. I think it. I, I probably can make an argument uh, a good one that it's in violation of that that the, maybe the manufacturer should be kicking in more money than than WAC minus MFP to fully protect the uh, pharmacy and make sure they truly have access to the maximum fair price. And so far as we can tell, there's not been any at all consideration on uh, dispensing fee or DIR fees, right? Because DIRs are associated with Medicare Part D. And right now, I think it's next year when, I know it's next year because I know what's happening at the end of this year, uh, is when pharmacies will be able to see right up front what will be taken in terms of the direct and indirect remuneration for that drug in advance. So, But, but that's not been calculated in. This is strictly a price negotiation, nothing else. Yes, it's not calculated in um, the in the relationship between the Part D plan or the PBM and the pharmacy. So that's been left unaddressed. And it's a problem because, I mean, to me, it, it, it's, it galls me that whether you agree with the IRA or not, the patient's gonna get this great protected drug benefit. And to say that all the, the individuals in the supply chain, from the manufacturer down to the patient, shouldn't be able to be equally treated and protected to me doesn't make any sense. I think if you're going to if you're going to set it up this way for the various policy reasons I thought was more important to 
you need to make sure that pharmacy is part of that because they're not truly being given access to the MFP if they're being reimbursed less than the MFP or less than the acquisition cost ultimately. If the MFP is not sufficient to uh, include uh, and they're not being paid enough to, to get to the actual acquisition cost. You're pointing to uh, something I've been wondering about throughout this conversation, which is what is the next level? What's the next evolution in the movement that we have been engaged in for the last several years? So we started off talking about pharmacy benefit manager reform precisely because there were so many secretive revenue streams that were pulling money away from those who rightfully earned it, worked for it, however you want to say that. They've pulled it away to their own you know, shareholder value and benefit and now that's getting exposed and those shenanigans and games are still being played. It's like, we're all very focused on that and we need to be, but at the same time, our providers, our pharmacies, our, our doctors, our hospitals are somehow still being squeezed out. And yet that's where patients go. You, you, I can't go to the store and get my prescription medicine off the shelf. I have to get it from a pharmacy. I, I, and I talk to my pharmacist when I have questions about when to be taking, you know, these medications, if I need a prescription, I get that from my doctor, you know, so I, I wonder what it will take to get the focus on the whole picture and not just the greed picture on the drug part, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, that's, that's, a, I think a big, exactly a big pro problem with pharmacy as a whole, not just in the Medicare space, but all across is that there's so much value that's given at the pharmacy counter. You know, there are accessible professionals, knowledgeable uh, in the subject, knowledgeable about the patient in terms of a lot, a lot of patients that have been going for years to their pharmacy. All of this resources, there's no currently no real compensation for this value. This is a tremendous value that retail community pharmacy brings to patients. And if you're a doctor, you'd be, uh, I mean, I don't, this is, I'm not dissing on the doctors, but they, what they're doing typically is there's a code for everything. Every time there's a pa patient interaction or some sort of care given, there's a code and that's submitted for billing and, and, and reimbursed in some way. And unfortunately, the way the, payment system is for pharmacies, it doesn't account for the tremendous professional care that is given to patients day in, day out. Without an appointment, just walk up and you can you can get care from a highly educated person. So uh, anyway, I think that's true. And, and this IRA is no does not solve that problem. It, 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 uh, it does still leaves that part of the equation missing. Yeah, I think it's like anything. It's a it's a work in progress. We can't wait for a perfect solution. Otherwise we'll have nothing, but maybe what we've got here is something that can be shaped or can evolve. And as we start to address the questions like what we've been talking about here, there's an opportunity to introduce those solutions uh, further up, up the line. So in fact, that that would be a great thing as we bring our podcast to a close uh, to talk about like what what would be some things that would help make this a better program. What what could we 
be advocating for. You know, Lauren is one of our our most forthright advocates, and she's you know incredibly knowledgeable on these things. So if I was going to dispatch Lauren to Washington D.C., which I would because she gets stuff done, what would we tell her to tell them? Wow. Uh, to me, you know, I, I recently visited uh, uh, several pharmacies here in Texas where I'm based. And it'd been a while since I've been in the store and it blew me away how each, and they're all independent pharmacies, independent community pharmacies. Some had uh, some LTC patients, you know, that, that was sort of a, a area of focus for them. Some were serving communities like uh, ethnic communities. There was a, one that was focusing on a almost exclusive Vietnamese uh, patient population. And, uh, you just cannot um, cookie cutter the independent pharmacy approach. Everyone is molded to the communities that they're serving. And to tell that story, to bring legislators into the store, to show them around and show how the, the store works and the communities that, that are being served, to me is just a huge eye opener. And so I would rather than, although Lauren would be phenomenal in Washington, D.C. if she should go, I think it'd be even more impactful if the legislators come into her store and see what is happening on a day-in, day-out basis in that store and be blown away by the tremendous care that people are getting day-in, day-out and how hard everyone is working at. That was the other thing that blew me away. I mean, no one works harder that I've seen. I mean, I'm sure maybe I we could argue, but I just never saw anyone with any downtime in any of the stores I've visited. I visited six stores across the Houston area. Everyone was just working, working diligently and on task uh, from, from the word go. So just, uh, I think nothing will showcase the need and the quality of care than actual in-store visits by legislators. I agree with that, Miguel. And I think that getting a legislator in your store, they can also see the trust that the patients put in the pharmacy staff. And in their eyes, that also equates to the voters trust your opinion. So if you are supporting that legislator, then that is an endorsement, theoretically, for them with your patients. And so that's how legislators view us as a resource for their constituents. And there's things that come into the pharmacy that have nothing to do with prescriptions. We have patients that that get a piece of mail and they don't understand what it says because it's from their insurance plan and they're not quite sure what it means. They don't know if it's real or if it's a marketing tool, what to do. So we help them with so much more than just putting the pills in a bottle with their name on it and the directions and getting them out the door. So I think the listeners need to remember the value that your connection to your patients bring and legislators are better for seeing that. Totally agree. Right this on. is my opener. And uh, it was really powerful for me. And I hope to, Lauren, I've never been in your store. Next time I'm in your area, I definitely want to come stop by and see it. Anytime. And I'm happy to go visit some of my favorite American pharmacy customers like John Dyer and, you know, Steve Hoffer and all the great people down in Texas, because they really have a way of making sure their legislators know what's going on in their store and the the pain points that patients are experiencing right now in a way that's not negative, doesn't come across as that, you know, poor, pitiful me business owner. Everyone wants to have a profit in business, but 
You just have to make sure that the legislators understand that it has to be an even playing field. Right now, it's not in our favor. Absolutely. Well, Lauren, Miguel, thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. I think this has been a really great discussion. And for the people who are listening, uh, we would love to have your questions about this. It's not fully defined. And of course, as always, there's no guarantees that anything having to do with the federal government can be changed and especially not changed quickly. But it's because we take the time to have these conversations, gather the information and gather the feedback that we're able to represent PUP members and friends in areas like this. So uh, please contact us. You can reach us anytime at info at truthrx.org. Uh, I would love to say um, thank you to our podcast sponsor, DataScan Pharmacy Software. They are an independent pharmacy software provider. So just right on brand with everyone else at PUT. Thank you guys so much for all the work you do. And American Pharmacies, who's a wonderful partner to PUT as well. And of course, if you're listening to this and you plan to be at NCPA this year, please come to our PBM Reform Cocktail Party. You will have so much fun. I promise, uh, as Miguel said, it's our third year in a row. And so we'll keep this one going. In the meantime, uh, that is it for this month. We look forward to seeing you all next month. Thanks for listening to the podcast and we'll see you next month.